corporation job at another corporation, um, making more. Now I've exceeded my, my goals and I'm killing it. And then I walk in one day and I was fired. Hi, welcome to the Entrepreneur's Wallet. My name is Jordi Mueller, and today we're going to be talking with Dave Wheel. Dave Wheel is the CEO and co-founder of PropFuel. He previously owned a company called Pitch Media, which he sold in 2015 to a private equity firm. And out of our conversation today, Dave was able to share some of the insights of what that sale was like, those moments of tension, what, what built up to those few hours, few days before that actual transaction happens. But also, most importantly, I think you will find very refreshing the way that Dave describes his relationship with money and success. Dave is a great storyteller, so there'll be definitely a parts of the podcast that you'll feel very emotional, extremely stressed, and you will get to feel how exactly he felt at the moment that he was living these stories. Um, so without any further ado, here's Dave Will. Good morning. We're here with Dave Will. He is the CEO and founder of PropFuel, a software company that is trying to bring culture to the forefront of basically every company and make employees listen more. I mean, employers listen more to their employees. Uh, I actually know Dave personally, and he's one of those people that as soon as you meet him, there's some energy that, that is transmitted to you. Um, and when I, when I was doing the research for this podcast, I actually realized a very, very vivid example of why is that. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but you have run 51 marathons. Um, can I ask you why? Hey, Jordy. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me on, man. This is awesome. Like, I, I just, anytime somebody says, hey, can I, can I uh, take an hour of your time or however long to, to um, ask you to talk about yourself? I, you know, it's hard for me to turn that down. Um, so thanks, thanks for having me on. And and to be honest, I really am a huge um, advocate of entrepreneurship. I I'm I just I I have such this great passion for for all things entrepreneur, and um, and so any chance I get to talk about that and and help encourage and motivate and maybe convert some people, I'm, I'm all about it. So this is my religion. So awesome. anyway, the marathons, yeah, what, what was the question? Well, the reason why I asked about the marathons is because to run a marathon takes a lot of drive, a lot of commitment, but you have run 51. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, it's, uh, so why was the question, I think? Yeah, why have you decided to make this one of your hobbies and passions? Because when I was a junior in high school, uh, uh, I took off my shirt at the beach after the prom, and which is where we went. And one of my friends, uh, and if you're listening, brother, this is what drove me. I don't know if he'll, he'd remember this, but uh, one of my friends uh, in front of all the girls uh, came up with this great nickname for me, Jelly Donut, because of the way I looked with my belly with my shirt off. And uh, it was, it, it, you know, it stung. And it, it's, it's stupid shit like that that makes you, um, <laughs> that, that plants this seed in your juvenile mind that says, you know what, I, I, can, I, I can do things. You know, I wasn't an athlete. I was in the marching band. I love the marching band. I'm not 
there's no mean by no way am I putting it down. I grew up sailing instead of playing little league. Yeah, I I, I was a I was a nerd, and it wasn't cool to be a nerd then. But I was in the marching band. I I sailed with my family instead of playing little league. I rode bikes with my family instead of um, uh, doing soccer. I um, um, we had a wonderful upbringing, but the reality was I was not an athlete. I tried. Oh my gosh, I played tennis in high school. I was literally the last. Um, the, the the worst tennis player on the team. I'm not exaggerating. I was literally the last seed on the team. I I remember throwing the javelin in track because I I <laughs> it was a heck of a lot easier than running. And I remember I was so short. I remember like with this javelin running um, down the field and you know doing that little javelin step. I don't know if you know the the I don't even know what yeah. you call it where you you know the the feet kind of do that little jiggy yeah. before you throw I don't know it. The the, the javelin, the tip, the end of the javelin, javelin dragged across the, <laughs> the ground behind me. <laughs> That's how short I was. And, and uh, so I was short, pudgy. And uh, so when I hit college, I had some very good friends. That, this is probably a much longer answer than you're looking for. Well, but so, I, so let, me, let me actually stop you right there because I, we are going to definitely talk about college. And, uh, mm-hmm. But I have a more basic question and uh, because we're definitely trying to get to how uh, you specifically, ha- or the relationship that you had with money growing up, that, that tends to drive people sometimes, and mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily just the, the nickname of Jelly Donut, but there's, there's, there's other influencers uh, when you're growing up that make people drive. And what was your view or how did you perceive money when you were growing up? Uh, uh, it's, know, I, it's yeah, there's so many so many ways to answer that question. Let me just describe my upbringing. Um, we had two cars. We had a beautiful house um, in a small town uh, outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, um, it, you know, it was modest. Uh, it's, when I say a beautiful house, it was to me as a kid, it was beautiful. You go inside the house, and we had lawn furniture in our in our. Uh, family room uh, because my parents couldn't rationalize getting uh, more expensive furniture yet soon, but not yet. Um, but when I say lawn furniture, I literally mean like aluminum furniture with netting. You know, that's the stuff we sat on to watch TV. Um, we had a TV that my dad made out of a kit in our living room. We had furniture that my mother won on a talk show Um so we had a modest upbringing. Now, having said that, uh, my mother was a teacher. Uh, my father was an engineer. My father is brilliant. He's, he is. He's, my mother's long gone. She, she died 20 plus years ago my, um, of cancer, unfortunately. My, my father is, uh, is uh, he's an hour away from us. He comes up all the time. But my father's a brilliant guy. He went to Cornell. And this is partially, I think, what drove me to entrepreneurship eventually was my father was was a brilliant guy. I mean, you can't go go to a much better school than Cornell, especially if you're engineering. And he ended up working 30 years for 35 years for a um, United Technologies and Pratt Whitney. Um, I think there was the, the, the Pratt Whitney became United Technologies at a certain point and they treated him like crap. He made very little money. 
Uh, he never broke a hundred thousand in terms of salary. Uh, I think he was at 60, 65, um, when I was growing up and, and, um, uh, and then he got fired, uh, or laid off. Uh, he got early retirement, I should say two months after my mother died. And that's, that's the way, that's the way they treat you, you know? So it, 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 it brings tears to my eyes to think about this. So that, so one more thing I want to say about the money. So in terms of money, they had a, the option of, of, um, for, this is the story I hear. I didn't know this. When I was really young, um, my parents said, you know what, we really want to do a cool vacation. And they were thinking, we'll go to California with the kids. We, again, Connecticut, California. It's a long trip. Um, and it was fairly expensive. So it was a big deal. And my father brought to my mother the idea of buying a small boat instead. So they bought a 26-foot boat for about the same price it would cost to go on vacation to California. And that became our vacation for the next uh, 15 years before they upgraded to a slightly bigger boat, but bigger by two feet. So mm -hmm. the, the boat became our, our, um, our vacation. It was, it, it was a tent on the water and it was beautiful. So that was my upbringing with money. Modest and I didn't care. It, it didn't affect my happiness. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So actually you just jump into my next question, which was money being an impediment for your happiness. And it seemed that it, it was not. Uh, and that oh, money, money that... is, has money has no relationship with happiness. You know, it can, the, what's that? There's a great song that says, uh, uh, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy me a boat. And that's true. <laughs> it really is. It's true. It's, and, and, but growing up, you know, I wouldn't have been any happier. I was enamored, I was enamored by money. I, I loved to look at the Ferrari on the highway when it drove by. Um, and it, and it's fun, but if fun is different from happy and I, 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 we can talk more about money and its relationship with happiness if you'd like, but, um, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer having come from not a lot of money and having a, a more money than I ever thought I'd have at this point. I can tell you that there's absolutely no correlation between the money and, and, uh, happiness. I'll definitely have to bring you back for that. Uh, we're def we're working on something and the relationship between happiness and money, which uh, there's a lot of research on this. So I would love to to get your input eventually uh, next next quarter on that. Um, so Don't get me wrong. Hold on, I gotta say this. It's fun. It's really, really, really fun. The boat is fun, and all the toys are fun, and it's it, it eliminates a, a a minimal amount of stress. You know it. It, and that's assuming that you have the base level of money. You have enough money to support yourself from that point to the point where you have millions or even billions of dollars. It's, it eliminates a minimal amount of stress in your life. So um, just for those listening that probably don't have a, a, a little bit of context of where you come from uh, or where you actually made your money on, uh, Dave was actually working for a big company at some point and if you go to his website, you can actually see how important this quote and this advice was for him. It changed his perspective on a lot of things, but uh, somebody down the hall told him something. And I, I don't know if you want to just uh, tell us and share. Oh, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, the, this is so I have a mantra that I live by and I'll, I'll tell you what that is. It came from this experience in my life. And it's funny 
this experience at the time, I had no idea how relevant it was. But you're right. I, I, again, my father was an engineer. My mother was a teacher. We do not have any entrepreneurs in our family. Um, ex- I take that back. I take that back with all respect to my grandmother. Um, she, when her husband died, she was, I think in her forties and he was in his sixties, but she was in her forties. She had no money and she started a health food shop in New York. So I can't say there's no entrepreneurs in our family. I wish I could ask her more questions about how she started that business. So I went down the path of getting as good grades as I could, which were not good at all, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really struggled in school. I really, really did. And then uh, I hardly got into college. This is college, throughout growing I, up or college? No, this is, this is uh, elementary. You know, I did fine. Middle school, I did fine. It was high school. It was when school got hard. You know, when school was more than just um, effort. You know, when, when, when you actually had to apply yourself and, and <laughs> use previous learning, use previous learning to apply to the next class that... Something happened where I just couldn't focus. Um, I really, really had a hard time staying focused in school, and and it ref- it, it reflected itself by grades. Um, I hardly got into college. I ended up going to UConn, University of Connecticut, which I loved. I loved UConn. I really hardly got in. I got in as a commuter for my first semester. Needless to say, um, the plan was essentially just to get a job, become a manager. And my dream as a kid growing up was to make six figures. If I could hit $100,000, if I could make $100,000, I didn't dream beyond that. That was my dream. One day, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to make $100,000. So, so and I, I thought right I'd do that. I, I have a mm-hmm. question regarding reach. What, what's in your head, reach? What's, what's financial success? Was that $100,000? Now or then or when? When yeah. then? Oh yeah, no, no. My financial success to me, as as an immature sapling, was uh, as little shitling that I was. It was the the rich to me, financial rich. By the way, let's be very clear about yeah. that. Uh, financial rich meant I was making a salary of a hundred thousand dollars a year. Everything else would follow. Which is silly. Of course, we, we know that's just, it's ridiculous. It's silly. I'm not talking about dollar amount. I'm talking about salary, which can change in a dime. It's, it's, it's not taking wealth into account. It's not taking, taking savings or your future. It has no investment. I mean, it's a completely immature perspective of money. But yeah, that was, that was my perspective as, as a, um, young kid growing up is, God, if I could make a hundred thousand dollars, the idea is if you make a hundred, well, then you're probably going to be able to do that forever and you're set. That's it. So, and, and, but the, the funny thing is that I saw a hundred thousand dollars being the pinnacle. So I, and the way I was going to do that, I was going to become a project manager. I mean, what could you dream of beyond that? And the reason I want to do that is because I adored my dad. I idolized my dad and um, that's kind of the path he took, and I was going to do it like him, just a little bit better. Like and it, it didn't matter what industry. I just wanted to manage. Properly. Nah, it, I, you know, whatever. Finance, yeah. probably, because that's isn't that where you make money? So, <laughs> so I was going to go into finance, and okay. you know, again, this is immature mentality. But 
things changed a little bit. I pivoted a little here and there, and I ended up getting a job at Kraft General Foods, which is fine. And then I went to Nielsen, and I, I'm, I'm on, I'm, now I'm in technology, which is cool. So I'm doing technology. I'm making like 30 grand. Got a little ways to go before I make my dream. And, um, and I decided I, I better get my MBA because that's the way I'm going to do it. So I go back full time to get my MBA at Penn State. And my grades got a little bit better in college. And I had some experience under my belt. I went to Penn State for, for my MBA. I got out of there making $75,000 working for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I was thinking, holy cow, I'm so close. Like, this is really, I'm making it. And I was ready to conquer the world. This was 1996. And, um, and, then, uh, and then I got, you know, I was traveling all over the place. And I went on to another uh, systems integration job at another corporation, um, making more. Now I exceeded my, my goals and I'm killing it. And then I walk in one day and I was fired. So that's okay. another story. Let me take you back. Now we can jump onto, we can go into that one, but that's, that's ultimately the event that led to me becoming an entrepreneur. But the question you asked was what was that trigger that changed the philosophy of my life? In yeah. that period, when I was getting my MBA, I worked for a company called SAP, software company, multi-billion dollar, huge, huge, huge software company, uh, German company. And I remember they were in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I remember my last day of my internship, my uh, uh, advisor walking me down the hall, my manager walking me down the hall, put his arm around me, walking me towards the door. And he said, you know, Dave, when you're walking down the halls, I encourage you walk a little faster and smile less because perception is reality. And I thought that was such great feedback. Like I thought that's awesome. And it's hard to hear because you, you need to do things differently. It's constructive though. And I could totally do that. It was, it was something I could execute right away. I mean, I could definitely stop smiling publicly so much. And uh, I mean, that's offensive. And I could also uh, walk a little faster. And it didn't dawn on me just how ridiculous those words were. But it actually, I, I looked at it with an open mind. I said, God, that's awesome because he's right. If I can paint the perception that I'm busy and important, then that will project itself and it will, it will then lend itself back to me in the form of a raise and a promotion to my next rung in the ladder. So uh, it was a few years later when I already told you I got laid off and I got fired. And it was at that moment in my life, I was 30 now, at that moment in my life that I embraced the antithesis of his advice to start a business. And so at that point, without even realizing it at that point, my mantra in life, everything I lived by became walk slow, smile more. And when I say walk slow, it doesn't literally mean walk slow. I, I have a great sense of urgency when it comes to the things that are urgent to me. Um, so walk slow doesn't, and, and obviously I, I, I run a lot. I, I, I mean, I don't walk slow in the places I go. What it means though, is that I really enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy the things around me. And I'm enjoy telling you, I'm, I'm smiling most of the day. And I'm, I'm laughing and even it has nothing to do with money. 
long before that when I had $80,000 of credit card debt and I had nothing saved for my kids' college funds when I was starting this business and a few years into the business, I was still smiling. I don't know where it was coming from, <laughs> but I was having a great time spending all that money. So, and, so, let's, uh, talk, so yeah. let's talk about that a little bit, about what you just talked about, all the debt and, and how you started to fund your first company and, and a little bit of not planning for your kids' college. And, and the reason why I want to point that out is because we hear that story a lot. Uh, we hear not, not the lack of planning, but the changing priorities to put into a business and forgetting a little bit of the personal side that this affects your family. So um, how did you fund your first company? Uh, it was all um, um, self-funded. I mean, when I say self-funded, I started it on $2,400. Um, yeah. I had a partner that had uh, some really good ideas. He was the visionary. I was the, I was the operations guy. I was the integrator and his name was Rick and, um, Rick had another job full time. So really he was the visionary, the contact guy. I was, um, the guy that had the grit and, and, um, um, this relentless tenacity to actually close a deal. And so I closed the mm -hmm. deal after deal after deal. Um, not fast, but that was my focus is to, um, bring in some customers, sell a product and bring in some customers. And, um, yeah, so, so, and then, and when pitch. we needed the money, uh, eventually, yeah. I mean, bear in mind, it took us like, God, seven years to hit a million dollars in revenue. So oh. this was not, it was not an overnight success. And then once you hit a million, what I found is that it rapidly, you, you rapidly hit two and then three and then four and so on. But, um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's far from an overnight success. It's a long grind. I can't tell you one year where I made the revenue I thought we were going to make, <laughs> which I guess is good. You got to always kind of have these great expectations and plans and then you have to accept uh, sometimes when you don't make those or all the times when you don't make those grand plans, that's our, the nature of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I was self-funded and I, I, I'm not going to lie. We, there were many times when I went to my dad, who is again, is, is not a wealthy man. And I went to my dad and said, dad, can I borrow $5,000? Cause we had a mortgage to pay and, um, and we had some bills. And Nicole, my wife, would go to her parents and she'd say the same thing. And we kept buying groceries and stuff on our credit card. And when we needed to buy something for our boy at the time, now we have three for a boy at the time, um, it went on the credit card and we'd have to pay our minimum credit card balance. And this went on for years. Oh my God. So it's, it's, and, and, and obviously we're not putting anything into a 401k at this point. I mean, I, I think that goes without saying yeah. the, the savings is at zero. We're so would you completely say all the, risk, in, all the risk was in your company. Everything was on this dream. Sure, all the opportunity was in the company. I mean, everything we had, we were invested completely into this company. I, I, I didn't have a great plan. I was incredibly immature when it came to running a business. That, and that's partially why it took so long to get to a million. I was learning. I was learning as we go. It's like, it's like somebody dumps a pile of tools in your driveway and says, build me a car. 
That's it's kind of like you figure it out. And I made tons of mistakes and we could have gone so much faster if I had the experience, <laughs> but it's okay. I, I loved it. I loved it. Every single day I went and got up. I never had a job where I was eager to get to work and I would go downstairs to my office, which by the way, same office I'm in right now building my second business, but I'd go downstairs to my office and I'd pick up the phone and I'd be on that phone all day. I'd be on my computer. I'd be cranking. I'd go up to use the bathroom every now and then. I'd say hi to my, my, my wife and my kids or my kid. And um, it was three years into the business that I finally got a cubicle somewhere by myself. And I talked to a remote, two remote employees occasionally. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, it's fun. Fun going so into debt. So um, it's fun going to that. That's, that's, that's an interesting perspective of this. Uh, what we hear a lot is that at some point when the company becomes profitable, uh, you just have more money for new ideas and you don't ever, ever stop to think about success or what it meant to you. That's, that's something that we hear a lot. Um, does that resonate with you? That it's just as, as the company starts growing, you just have more cash flow to do yeah it, it's interesting you got to balance um the profit with the how much you're dumping back into the business because you know profitability is nice but in a high growth company or any company where you're attempting growth you're spending money that you're not that, that doesn't turn into revenue until later so did you have any help from an outside person for that uh, in, in terms of advice, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, we didn't. Uh, we um, eventually, uh, there were circumstances that required me to find an attorney. Um, good, good circumstances. Uh, it, we weren't getting sued or anything. Uh, eventually, <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, bond to another company. I, I call it bond because it's kind of a merger. Um, I guess on paper, we acquired this other company. I say that because I became the majority shareholder and thus it was by definition an acquisition, but really it was a, a, so I brought on this attorney to help us with that. And he became, and still is uh, my number one advisor. Now from a financial perspective, um, I, I rightfully or wrongfully, we we didn't have much from a financial perspective to manage. We had very, very little. And when it came to how to where to allocate the funds, the answers weren't difficult. I wasn't going to put it into um, a 401k when I could put it into the business. It, it was a gamble. It was a real gamble. And having said that, though, I I. Uh, not everybody has this, but I knew at the core, I knew if we needed help, Nicole's parents and my dad, regardless of, of, of um, their status, as long as they could, they would help us. I knew that. And, and so there, that's something not everybody has. So, yeah, so... I know your story a little bit, a little bit uh, compared to probably a lot of the listeners. I know that February 2015 changed your life. Um, 
and, and we'll get to that acquisition or that selling of your company. Um, but from what I hear and from what I've been listening to right now, there was not, um, I would say, a thought process in a day-to-day -day basis that I'm building this to sell. It was, it was more like I want to keep enjoying my everyday. Uh, do you remember when it changed? When it became yeah, a oh yeah, oh yeah. So so um, it, and that's not complete. That's not completely true. I mean, from day one, I had great expectations of building a business of immense value. Um, but immense value to me meant I'd be bringing in a lot of money. Um, okay. Uh, and and bear in mind, at first, it was all about the money. And then over time, as I was building a great culture in the business, I realized that um, the money was coming uh, and we needed something greater. We needed something more important. We needed something that was more of a driver, not only for myself, but for the people in the company. And that's when we became a little more purpose driven and focused more on uh, uh, the why, as Simon Sinek puts it. Um, the, the why are we in business? And, and it was, I went through this period of time where I, I discovered what culture meant and it became very, very important to me to build a company around culture. But to answer your question about building to sell, um, I think it was, uh, around 2010, or so shortly after 2010, because 2010 was a really hard year. So it must've been around 2011 or 12 that we, we, we had eventually evolved into what we realized was a software company. We were services for a long time using our own proprietary software to deliver the services. And then it is it, weird. It was like overnight, uh, my executive team and I, made a decision that we're a software company now. And it was at around the same time when I realized, holy shit, we're a software company. We, we need to start selling our software, not the services that we use our software for. That began a completely different shift in the business. And that was the time in which I said, God, I'll bet we could build something to sell. And so we came up with a plan. It was a five year, you know what, I, I think at this point it was a three-year plan to um, build the company with the result of either A, having uh, enough financial reward so that the executive team and the people in the company are, are thrilled, we have security in the company, and we're highly motivated to continue on, or we have enough value so that it's a legitimate sale. So it was at that point around 2012 that we created this plan. The plan was complete about six or nine months later. And it was literally like a year later that um, we were, we were approached by two different private equity firms around the same time. And uh, that's what led to the sale. It was so, so it was actually, we weren't ready to sell when, when the time came. We, we, in fact, I, I, I dismissed it. Um, which is, Why did you say that? Why do you say you were well, not ready? Because we had so much more to do. We had, I mean, I, I knew we could create so much more value. Um, we, it felt like the, 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 it wasn't ready. It wasn't cooked. <laughs> and I like, I, there, there's, I know what to do. There's so much more we can do to, to add more value to this. And, but 
the funny thing is when, when a private equity firm makes the decision that they want you, um, generally speaking, they're going to get you. And that's what happened. <laughs> so, it was um, awesome. I'm going to try to help us or help everybody listening walk us through that particular week where you sold the company and what it meant to you and, and what you felt. Uh, I know it was February 2015, and I looked at it, and it was a very cold winter here in Boston. Uh, do you remember the feelings and emotions? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'll never forget the feelings and emotions. First of all, let's start with, let's start with, um, so this was happening, God, it was October when I got a phone call. It was literally like two weeks later when they sent me a letter of intent. Or, or called first with a letter of intent. The first phone call I received, I was in the San Francisco airport. Um, and my wife was meeting me there because we were, I was coming from Seattle and she was in Boston and she met me out in San Francisco. I was there for another business trip, but she was going to spend a few days with me out there. So I was waiting for her when I had a meeting scheduled with the private equity firm. They made me an offer and I, um, on the spot, without even thinking about it, declined it. It, and it. And I wasn't negotiating. I, I sincerely, uh, it wasn't enough. I needed lifelong money to, um, I needed it to be lifelong money for us to consider doing this because like I said, we're, the business was awesome. We're kicking ass. And, and I didn't want to walk, I didn't want to sell this just to have to start something else. So uh, they ended up coming back two days later with an offer that um, made more sense. And um, uh, so at this point, I'm ecstatic, but I'm educated enough to know that there's still about a 30% chance of, of the letter of intent actually turning into a close. Well, as things went on, it, we, we started the due diligence process. Very, very intense process. And I've heard nothing uh, different from anyone else. It's a, the due diligence is excruciatingly, um, detailed, <laughs> utterly consuming. And, uh, we were expecting to close before Thanksgiving. That was the plan. And a couple days before Thanksgiving, they said, well, we need a little more time. Ugh, okay. So we need another week and that other week turned to another until, uh, they want to see the numbers at the end of the year. So that, that turned into as quickly as we could get the December numbers. We've never turned our numbers around so quickly. It was the best month of our, in our history. So January 7, we met with them. And at this point, I'm like going crazy trying to figure out what's going on. And, and there's something weird going on. And um, without getting into the details, because I, I can't share a lot of the details about this, but, you know, something was going on. And... Um, so needless to say, they said, we're going to put this off six months. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. After all this, I've thrown away, you know, X number of dollars in legal fees, this and that. So then, <laughs> then they called again. This just to give you an idea of the roller coaster, right? Then they call again literally a week later. And they're like, tell you what, I think we have an idea. And they were not negotiating. They were le legitimately trying to figure out how they were going to proceed forward because there was no talk of money. Week later, they call and say, wait, I think we figured out how we can do this. If you can commit to staying with us for a year, we can do X, Y, and Z. We can do this and that. And, and they figured it out. We made it happen. And uh, February uh, 13 was the close. That was a Friday, I think. Um, 
we were driving up to, we finished all the meetings, the conversations, the negotiation. There was one phone call I was on, the third phone call that Friday. It was around three in the afternoon. I remember getting on the phone. There was literally like 15, 16 people on the line, most of them lawyers and financial people. And essentially the meeting went like this. So um, everybody has documents? Yep. Any uh, any remaining issues or questions? Nope, 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 no, nope, I'm good, nope. All right, we're good. That's a call, and it, it, they, we all hung up. So the final call essentially was just an opportunity for people to speak up and say something. And then, uh, this is a long story. I have a hard well, time it's like making my stuff. Are you sure anybody against this marriage? That's, that's essentially, because we had had two calls earlier that were similar, but somebody had an issue. And so then we'd go resolve that for a couple hours and come back. Okay, uh, that was 10 o'clock. Okay, guys, can we reconvene at noon? Great, noon comes on. I got this thing. We got to figure it. Okay, great. We'll resolve that. Can we reconvene at three? Because again, the, we're closing today. That was, the deal is we're closing today. So three o'clock comes, we close. Everybody's happy. I call my lawyer. I'm like numb. I can't believe this just happened. Um, I, I, I'm looking at my wife. I'm, I'm at my house. I look at my wife and I'm just looking at her like, did this just really happen? I'm kind of expecting just to wake up. And um, anyway, get in the car at a certain point and I'm waiting for the money to come in. I keep talking to my lawyer. Hey, so when should I expect this? I had a Vanguard account. When, when should I expect to see this? When is it going to come in? He says, oh, it should be any minute. You know, we're expecting it. So we get in the car, we're heading up to New Hampshire to, um, we're heading up to New Hampshire for, to meet some friends, to stay at their little condo, to go skiing at Loon Mount, uh, Bretton Woods Mountain. And, um, I keep checking my phone on the way up, nothing. So I call Vanguard. I'm like, guys, listen, I'm expecting a substantial deposit. And I'm just wondering, when can I see that? And the guy says, you're not going to see that until the morning. We don't, uh, uh our, our accounts don't. The money market accounts don't um, renew that quickly or refresh that quickly. Like, oh, Jesus. So go to bed, wake up the next morning. I open my phone and it was there. And so when I say money doesn't buy happiness, that's true. I, that, that doesn't mean money doesn't make you smile. It doesn't mean money can't give you this rush. It doesn't mean money can't give you this rush. It doesn't mean it can't take away some stress. And I want to talk about stress in a second. So uh, I ended up, and you said it was a cold winter morning. You're absolutely right. I ended up getting up. I was on a running streak where I was trying to run, and I did uh, for every day for a year. And I got up. It was 15 below zero that day, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I, I, think I'm not, I don't think I'm confusing my days. I think it was that day. It was 15 below zero. And I ended up getting up, putting on, you know, goggles at this point, everything to cover myself up. And I went for a run on the uh, snowmobile tracks in New Hampshire. So uh, let's talk about stress for a second. I thought, silly or not, it is a little silly, but I actually thought when all this money would come into the account, I thought that would eliminate 80% of the stress in my life. And I thought, that all the, all the way to the point where I can imagine even sitting in traffic and letting it bother me. Like, why would it bother me? I could just buy a nicer car, right? Like, why would it? So for some reason, I thought this would eliminate 
all that stress. And here's the thing, Jordy, it didn't. It didn't change a thing. I went to a, a store that night <laughs> at the ski resort and I saw this really cool shirt that I wanted to buy. And I looked at the price tag, it was $90. And I was like, hell no. I could spend $90 on a shirt. My wife made me buy it, but I didn't like it. I didn't want to buy it. <laughs> and my point is, it really didn't change much in terms of um, anything at all, for that matter. Uh, what, it, what it changed, what it changed, Jordy, is we had, we had college funding. And I could go buy that boat I always wanted. And we could do some renovations on our house. That, that's, that's what it meant. And that's it. There's still stress at school. There's still stress on the highway. There's still stress in relationships in your marriage. There's, um, I wouldn't argue there's more, but there's certainly not less. So anyway. So, so now, I mean, this is obviously two years ago and you have, uh, we'll talk about it, about self-funding a new company now, but do you see now money differently? Uh, do I see money differently? That's interesting. Um, my relationship with money is different. Um, so, which I guess is the same question. I just had to rephrase it yeah. in a way that I understood it. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> my okay. relationship with money is different. Here's how. Um, I see bills and I see credit card statements and they stress me out. They really, really do. Um, and uh, here's how it's different. And then I pay it. That's how it's different. Um, <laughs> the, the, but it's, it's still, I see, I, yeah, I, well, no, it's, it's always there. I still see these bills and I see all this, the, the, I see money we're spending that we don't need to spend. And that still stresses me out. And, and, and it's because I grew up watching TV on lawn furniture inside a house. It's because we chose to buy a, a small boat instead of going to California as a kid. Not, not, I'm not saying woe is me. That was an awesome thing. But we were very, very fiscally responsible all my life. And, um, and, and so when I see circumstances where I have to um, spend money, uh, it, it's still stressful. Having said that, I, it also has allowed me to contribute more um, to, to organizations that I care about. Um, and that's not stressful. That's really fun. That's really, really fun. Um, I bet it is fun. Uh, here's an interesting question that I think um, might dig a little bit into the technicality of money. Um, but if you have gone back to that sale week, mm -hmm. you suddenly have this ability to spend a lot more. Would you have planned differently anything regarding your financial planning? What, I'm sorry, when looking forward or looking backwards? No, Meaning, looking backwards. I, would I have done anything different about? in the early days? Yeah. No, what would I have done differently? I mean, I can't imagine. Um, first of all, I, I've never... I honestly, this, this sounds like such a line, but I, I've never looked back in my, in my life and said, I wish, or I would have done this differently. Eh, rare circumstances. No, looking back, I did exactly what I had to do. Um, even if it meant, um, 
even if it meant struggling when it was time to pay for college, even if it meant uh, selling our house and having to move into a smaller house, which was, these were legitimate concerns, even if it meant not going on vacation, uh, you know, going camping, backpacking with my kids and wife. Um, no, I wouldn't have done a thing differently. I just wish I did it earlier. I wish I did. I mean, that's one of the things I would have changed. Why, why would I waste my time working for an organization, even getting an MBA? Why would I waste my time? I had a great time, by the way. I loved getting my MBA. It was fun. But why would I waste my time working for Nielsen and Kraft and, and PricewaterhouseCoopers doing something that I'm not very good at? I wasn't very good at it. So, so not good that I, that I got laid off. And that's my, one of my greater regrets is, and some people say, oh, but you learn so much then. I guess, maybe. But to be honest, I learned a hell of a lot more in six months of running my own business than I did in business school. Um, I want to turn it now a little bit to the personal side of this, which is not necessarily about your business and it's not necessarily about your past. It's about how you're teaching your kids about money. Mm -hmm. um, that's really hard. I, yeah, I was my. I guess my specific question would be, what's your biggest fear when you're doing this? Uh, when I'm doing what? When I'm when I'm starting a business, or, no, or no, when I'm playing kid. with money now, or so. Uh, let, let's answer it all. So, you know, my greatest fear when I'm starting a business is that my kids don't understand how important it is to save for the future, right? So it's like, I see dad, he's, he's putting it all on the line. Um, that's a, it's a pretty risky approach to life is not, I mean, it's a, it's a really, um, smart thing to go get a job, you know, make 125, 150, you know, ultimately if you're doing great, you get 200, 250 and you can put money aside and there's a 401k. And you, you know, you might have a commuter. Maybe if you manage it well, you can work from home. That's, that's the direction to go in to provide for your future securely, safely. But uh, I couldn't do that well. I, I, I just wasn't very good at that. And I was, I was struggling to find any kind of fulfillment in my career that way. So I couldn't do that. So, um, you know, I put it on the line and I'd hate for my kids to, um, you know, I th I'm torn on that one. I guess th there's something to be said for um, uh, accepting risk. And the reality is I've got their back all the time. If, if they ever, it, it, I actually want my kids to take risks. So forget that. I'm glad they saw that. Now we have my, okay, so I'm reversing all of that. I actually, I I'm, I'm really glad that they could see that their dad is willing to put it on the line. I'm going to completely reverse what I said. No, I'm thrilled my kids could see the, the, that I put it on the line because that's what made me happy. That's what gave me a sense of fulfillment. I just regret it took me to be till I was 30 to do. So my kids, mm -hmm. I was at every one of their soccer games, their band uh, concerts, their basketball games, their Boy Scout events. I go camping with them all the time. And I could only do that because I was an entrepreneur. And the freedom that comes with that is amazing. I also worked till two in the morning, midnight. First three years of my life, I don't think I went to bed before midnight without my laptop. So, so 
I managed my days and I worked seven days a week for a long, long time late at night because there was stuff I needed to do to be, make sure I was ready for the next morning. So that, that this sounds, it sounds hectic. It sounds like you actually entrepreneur life would become a, a type of lifestyle where Oh, it's, it's awesome. Free, Who's, whose life means... isn't hectic though. Even my friends that commute into Boston, their lives are crazy too. So, so then the question becomes, how do my kids learn after this sale, right? Like, so what's their perspective of money? And that's the part that's scary because it doesn't happen to everyone. It doesn't happen to all entrepreneurs. It doesn't mean if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to eventually sell your business and, and make uh, lifelong money like that. And I wonder if my kids see this as normal because it's important to me that they don't but on the other hand you know if they 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 get the clothes they want we go on crazy vacations because i want to i want to educate them I want them to become worldly we take them all around the world on trips um we have this beautiful boat that i only dreamed of as a kid and so yeah uh it's it it's I think the important thing, the, the way we try to balance it is we make sure we're very, very, very focused on their manners. We're focused on their ability to communicate with, with people. We're focused on gratitude. We have dinner together almost every night. We say grace. We're not even a religious family. We say grace holding hands at the table every night. Um, we spend a oh, lot of time together on vacations. Um, so we have a very strong bond in the family. Now, hopefully that will rub off to the relationship with money too. There is, um, Tim Ferriss has one of these uh, podcasts uh, regarding questions on money and he's interviewing this Silicon Valley guy, another angel investor. Mm -hmm. and, um, he, he asked him about their relationship with money or what money means to him. And, and the response for this very humble, uh, guy it was after rice and beans and other basics money is just a story and that stuck to me because it seems that every time i interview an entrepreneur that is exactly what it becomes it's like after the basics everybody makes their own story for you was be able to buy that boat and and enjoy your vacations and teach your kids and have the freedom to do other stuff uh but it's it's that's your story and it it doesn't bring anything else um, no, that's true. That's absolutely true. It, it does not, it doesn't bring the things you think it brings when you don't have it. <laughs> you think it eliminates stress. You think it'll fix your marriage. You think it will um, 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 solve so many problems. You think it'll eliminate stress and traffic. It doesn't. It doesn't do any of those things. What fixes a marriage is actually doing the dishes vacuuming and and paying attention to your spouse what what uh and i say that on my behalf i'm not saying my wife should vacuum and do the dishes more <laughs> no i'm saying what what makes a marriage strong is actually attention to each other what makes your your participation in the traffic and the commute is is a peace of mind it's 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 listening to the podcast and calming yourself down it's, it's a little bit of personal hypnosis um, that's not the money. There's no nothing. Money can't buy any of that stuff, but it can buy a boat 
and that's a lot of fun. <laughs> We're getting into marriage advice in this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, so we appreciate that. Um, I, I want to kind of close the conversation in a, in a couple of topics. And, and this probably would fall a little bit into your philosophy in life. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You... Can we go back to, let's go back to the money thing. So, so with the yeah, money, here, here's, because this is really important to say, I think. Uh, with the money, uh, we bought college. We bought yes. uh, uh, my, my dream boat. Because again, growing up as a kid, this was a big part of who I was. And it's a dream. And I could go, I could talk all about the dreams I had and the, the association with family and my father uh, and boats. So this boat was very, very meaningful to me personally. Um, and then we, we built on, we had a small cape. We built onto our small cape. We didn't want to leave our house. Uh, so those are three things. The fourth thing that we did with our money was I started a new business. And that's something, again, not a lot of people have the luxury to do. I'm a year into this business and I've done nothing but spend money. I have not made a dime. And uh, that's a luxury that um, not a lot of people can afford. So that's, I, I would argue that we actually, I, the, another opportunity I bought was the opportunity to start another business. Are you, are you more careful now with this startup compared to the first one regarding how you're managing oh, no. your money and how no. you're planning for it? No. No. Okay. Uh, no, careful. No. Why? In fact, no, we're, we're, well, because I can lose money. I can, I, I don't have to go to my father or my in-laws to borrow money if we lose it. Um, we're actually, the intent is to build this in a very scalable way from the get-go. And so it's a completely different mindset that requires um, uh, much more investment up front. So it's a completely different mentality. The last one, I had to be very careful. The goal was to put money on the table so I could buy groceries. Uh, that's why it took 14 years to build it to be of, of any value to anyone. Um, this one, uh, we're building to create great value in a fairly short period of time, which requires a bigger investment up front, and it requires a much better focus on its scalability. So no, I, we are not being more careful. We're being more strategic. I, I have to kind of like dig back a little bit now that I, that I heard that and, and ask you if you have, if a bad financial decision you've made on your businesses comes to mind. And I ask that because entrepreneurs, and I'm generalizing hugely here, they tend to not admit any. And they don't admit anything, is that what you said? Any bad financial decision in the company or personally. And, and I don't know if you wanna share one that you have done or maybe you have not done any bad financial decision through. Oh man, it's interesting you say that. No, I've made a lot of bad financial decisions um, in the company, but, but the bad financial decision is almost a requirement for figuring out the right financial decisions. That's like saying, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, the classic example is the light bulb. If Edison didn't screw up, uh, I don't know what the magic number is. There's some, you know, Wikipedia, this one, but if he didn't screw up 112 times, he wouldn't have, have been able to, to figure out how it works that 113th time. So yeah, I, I think <laughs> there's tons of directions that we go in that are just the wrong direction. 
and we spent money going in that direction. Uh, you know, most recently, we put a ton of money into digital marketing and, and paid advertising. And it was, <laughs> we did it wrong. We didn't do it well. Uh, and and it, it, there was a zero return on it. So, yeah, there's, there's one mistake. I, I learned. It, it took me the price of a college education, but <laughs> I, learned, I learned how not to do it the next time. So, yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that in terms of we don't admit to making uh, financial mistakes. Holy mackerel. Yeah. But it's a requirement. Yeah, I agree. It sounds like something we experience in our company here, too. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a requirement to success, to fail a few times in decision making. Yeah. Money. Um, your company is growing. Your company is doing good. Uh, I personally love your your proposition, your your service. I love that you guys approach. use it. I love it. You yeah. you guys, Lexington Wealth is is uh, seems to be using it really really well, and and I hope I hope it helps. Um, I hope it helps you create a stronger company. Um, I, to close, is is a couple of things. The one is, what's your current definition of success? And, and I know, and I say current because it definitely evolves over time, but what is your current definition of success, financial or just personal success? I don't know. My, my, my definition of success hasn't, hasn't changed. And it, of course, it depends on the level of what you're talking about. You're talking about success in the business, success to the family, but generally success as a, as a person is if, if I can find fulfillment in, in my work, if I can keep my family strong, then it, those are the only two things I need to to consider myself a successful person. Fulfillment in my work, regardless of the money it makes. If I built a a, a business that was small and never really could sell, but you know, making some money, and but most importantly, I'm actually feeling fulfilled doing it. Now, bear in mind fulfillment includes a certain level of financial success, right? So fulfillment in my business and uh, a strong bonded family is those two things are the only two elements I need for success. Everything else, the boat, the sailing, the, the, um, the running, the physical stuff. Um, uh, there's not a heck of a lot you can do about your health. I mean, there's some things you can do to maintain health. But for me, it's all about fulfillment of my business and a healthy, bonded family. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, one thing that we're doing in this podcast, uh, and this is just definitely to close down the podcast, we are asking what we consider every successful entrepreneur, and we definitely con consider you one day. Thank you. To mention or say thank you to a mentor that comes to mind that has helped you definitely shape your success. Oh my and, God. There's so many. Give the opportunity to say thank you. There's so many. There really are. Um, um, you know, and I, I'd start with my father being one of my greatest mentors. I'm not going to limit it to one. So forgive me for that because there's, there's been a number of people that have been such a major influence on me that my father, uh, hands down, number one, my wife is, is just in a much different way. My wife has been, um, a huge, I don't know if mentor is the right way, but, uh, advisor, a coach and a supporter. And, and, uh, she, she leads this example 
um, just amazing strength in that woman. And uh, I think about the strength it takes to drive in the passenger seat of somebody who's driving erratically. <laughs> that's that's what my wife is doing and she's not even hitting the floor with her with her fake brake foot you know um so so then th there's my wife uh early on in the business my friend jerry sicardo was a huge mentor and advisor um that ultimately we ended up bringing into the business uh my my uh, uh my attorney scott foster and it's really funny to refer to my attorney as a mentor and advisor but he has has really taught me a lot uh, about the stuff I really don't like uh, in the business. But he's been a really good wingman um, through many, many years of changes and shifts and threats and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff in my first company. And he's he's uh, he's really helping us out a lot with our second company as well. So, I mean, those are just a handful of people cool. um, that have meant a lot to me over the years. Well, uh, that is awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Lexington, well, really appreciate you, Dave. I, I personally appreciate you a lot. I learn from you every time I talk to you. Um, we wish you, or I wish you the greatest success with PropFuel. Uh, for those listening, please try PropFuel. Contact uh, Will. You can add him on Facebook. Soon on Instagram. I keep telling Dave that he needs to get on Instagram. And Twitter, yeah, they're pretty active. So, Dave, thank you for your time. But Jordy, I really, awesome. I, I'm, I sincerely enjoy talking to you every time we have a conversation, and I'm looking forward to having you over sometime. And, and uh, uh, yeah, we have a we have a bright future together. So thanks for your time. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Have a good you day. You too. Wow, that was a lot of fun. I want to take the opportunity and thank Dave once again for his time today. We really appreciate his candor, his honesty, and his storytelling uh, above everything. So go follow him on Twitter. Go follow him on Facebook. Uh, his Twitter handle is at PropsDave, P-R-O-P-S-D-A-V-E. Go follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we are Lexington Wealth. We will be posting a lot more episodes in there. And like our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and you'll get to know a lot more entrepreneurs the way you just did, Dave. Thank you so much and until next time, have a good day.